you ever seen someone do really well and wonder how on earth they managed it? I found myself asking that very question at times, and now I want to uncover the elements that go into creating success, influence, connection, and most importantly, happiness in people's lives. My friends, welcome to the High Performance Human Podcast. Welcome once again to the High Performance Human Podcast. It's Andy here, and today... We are going in a slightly different direction, but a direction that I am really, really looking forward to. Nathan Shooter is fast becoming one of the voices, uh, not just in Australia, but in Southeast Asia and beyond uh, when it comes to all things marketing, branding and the like. He's a professional speaker and he's been in marketing for a number of years And apart from anything else, the way that he goes about it, it makes it a lot easier for people to follow him. Nathan, a very, very warm welcome to you. Thanks ever so much for joining us. How are you going today? I'm very well, and thank you so much for inviting me to be part of your exciting podcast and to join your audience uh, in learning how to be a more high-performance human. So I'm happy to be here. I'm doing well, and I'm excited. Uh, look, man, the, the, the pleasure is absolutely all mine. It, absolutely, it really, really is. So to put the, uh, our, relationship, our fledgling relationship into context, team, uh, I'll be honest, I only met Nathan uh, only a few months ago before this. Before we've done this podcast. And and what the, the immediate impression that I got from Nathan was that he is an absolute fountain of knowledge, but the way that he goes about his articulation of said knowledge is is done in such a an approachable, humble, yet authoritative way that it really did. I mean, aside from the the knowledge that he was putting out there, which was which was good in itself, the you, the approach that he had was what really really struck me, and it, that's what led me to connect with him and, and want him on this podcast because. Tim, when it comes to the high-performing human series, we want to make sure that we can get everybody to become a lot more creative in their success, their influence, their connection, and, of course, their happiness. Now, Nathan, the format of this show is we ask you two quick questions to get us started, and then we roll on into a couple of other topics that I'm sure you're going to be absolutely wonderful with. First things first, uh, give us an elevator pitch, a quick 30, 60 seconds on who you are, your background, and where you find yourself today. Great question, great way to start. So my name is Nathan Tudor, as you've already established. Um, and I'm a brand and marketing consultant, having done it 20 years. I've now uh, made the shift rather than delivering creative services like branding, you know, film and uh, video and web marketing. I now do a lot of consulting around the Make Ideas Matter framework, which I developed to help leaders really brand their ideas so that their ideas can change people because people change the world. Oh, can you tell, can you <laughs> tell that he is one polished individual gang? Jeepers, this one's going to be a brilliant, brilliant episode. Uh, second question, what, if you could define a high performance human, so in your eyes, what what do you think is the, is the clear definition as best as you can describe for when it comes to a high performance human? For me, a high performance human really is about two things. It's about limits and potentials, knowing how to identify and leverage limits and know how to identify and also leverage potential. And 
you'll see in the discussion that's to follow, my approach to success outwardly actually begins in how you serve others. And so for us, and for me rather, that's really about limits and potentials. I like it. It's interesting. Everybody that's calling this podcast has got a slightly different skew on it, which is fascinating. Mm. And um, leveraging limits and potential. So let's, I just want to dig into that for a second. So you talk about leveraging limits. For a lot of people, the general vernacular can be for one to really focus on your strengths, right? And focus on the things that you're good at. Uh, but and, and, and in some older school quarters, it's always a case of, you know, really working on your weaknesses sort of thing. But leveraging your limits, that's a slightly different spin on both of those. So what do you mean? Dig into that for me for a second. What do you mean by leveraging limits? So leveraging uh, the limits and unpacking potential is kind of two different uh, ways of seeing the world. So the first one is not so much deficit-minded, but it's all about uh, kind of finding freedom within a framework, right? So in the creative industry where I spent uh, my last 20 years, we get given this very narrow scope, uh, read that as a limit, right? We get given a very tight brief on what we have to do and then we, the creative people, then have to have the freedom to create something magnificent and beautiful within those limits, within that little framework. So it really helps you to innovate and then to iterate your ideas because of that imposed limit. And then if you transfer that, say, to us as humans away from projects, as was the case with creative industry, you look at people, we are living projects, right? And so for myself, I sat in a, in a client uh, meeting last week and I said this thing to this company owner. I said, personally, I don't trust leaders who don't walk with a limp. And he was kind of silent and a bit shocked by that. Um, but what I was wanting to, I guess, explain was that people are very multidimensional and really we focus so much on success and not talking about the limits because that's what's dragging us down. But I'm like, hang on, what if we just leveraged those limits and lean into the limits like what graphic designers do and like video editors do? They have this little tiny box they've been assigned, but they've given the massive project outcome to shoehorn into it. So let's do the same for our lives, right? So identify the limits, leverage them, and then create maybe five steps to do it. So for this particular gentleman, he had works about himself as a company owner, the way he led his team that he thought were weaknesses. In actual fact, when we talked about it and he, we looked at how he could leverage it, it became a feature, right? It didn't uh, just stay as a problem. We made the problem into a feature. He leveraged his limits and now he's even more effective than he ever has been. I really, really like that. So another way of putting that could be potentially to uh, – make magnets of attraction from your vulnerabilities. Is that, mm. is that the sort of vibe that we're looking at here? It is. It's not just only just being, uh, I guess, attractive because we're, you know, in air quotes, human, uh, because that's an old story to me. Vulnerability, uh, at least, I guess, where, where I sit is a given almost. I know that different parts of the world, it's not the case. Uh, I know that a lot, of do, a lot of the work that I do in Southeast Asia, it's still kind of a bit newer compared to where we sit in Australia and say America or, or uh, Europe, depending where your viewers are coming from. Different areas of the world, uh, there's a lagging uh, kind of catch up with the vulnerability movement, if you want to call it like that. So for me, it's really looking at, firstly, are you talking from a position of strength? 
And then if you are, then you can talk about your limits. Mm. Because one thing we need to do is to make sure as personal brands, people who are leaders, are we developing trust and credibility before we start to bring in the cracks to show people that, you know, I am just like you. It's better to have foundations before showing that there are strategic cracks uh, in your building or in your personhood, right? We want to create absolute trust and authority and credibility first. And then from that position a platform of, of, of uh, strength, then you can really step it up and show people, hey, I'm just like you. Here are the limits that I have, which are actually helping me. That's a really, really interesting observation. That. And I think you've, you've, I love that you've sort of pulled back from this whole vulnerability movement that you, that you mentioned just then, because I think that one thing that I believe a lot of personal brands are making a mistake with is, and I might be guilty of this myself to a degree, actually, um, is utilizing or using their vulnerabilities as a lead out piece as opposed to really earning that credibility first in order to make that openness uh, a lot more viable because if you lead with those vulnerabilities then i guess from an influential point of view it's going to be more of a oh they're there sort of influence like you know they they sort of feel sorry for you and can relate to you but then being able to see any credibility beyond that becomes a little bit a little bit more difficult i guess absolutely and the reason of why i'm so bullish on this point is not as uh you know an anti vulnerability uh posture but actually it's to actually put that vulnerability on steroid steroids so let's just use a case study right so let's just look at say for example my life right so uh, as you would have heard in my keynote in, in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned a health crisis that I had uh, maybe 9, 10, 11 years ago, right? So I've been doing professional speaking for you know for quite some time now, but I haven't really mentioned it uh, in the headlines of my content because I felt, again, probably I'm guilty of you know not necessarily following my own advice in some ways, just like you're you're the same probably, and I'm sure. Every parent tells our kids, you know, uh, do as I say, not as I do necessarily. So in the first couple of years, I did follow my advice and I was just like, you know what, just focus on the idea, just focus on the message. And then when I'm ready, as in emotionally and physically, and, you know, even just commercially ready to talk about my limits, then bring that in as a really stunning stage two, but strategically. So then as of about kind of last year or even maybe a little bit earlier than that, I started talking about uh, some of the, you know, the disabling chronic pain management surgeries I have every year and about how things went wrong, uh, about how I've then used that to leverage those limits and turn that into something that really did change the direction of my life. But if you rewind before that, I probably wasn't confident to talk about it with that real sense of strength and real security. So what would happen, Andy, is if I were to have talked about those things too early, that would have changed the accent in which I spoke. Mm. Probably would have infused the things that I was teaching with maybe a little hint of insecurity, right? So we need to make sure that we're in a position of strength so it's not influencing or adding an accent to what we're teaching or what we're sharing. Because people can spot it. People can spot your uh, the, the way that you haven't resolved something in your own life. They can spot it a mile away. So I was very strategic and careful to make sure, hey, Nathan, are you in a position to be able to talk about all the things that you've strategically planned to talk about? 
And then when you add this extra layer on, will you man, uh, maintain credibility if, uh, you know, up, uh, up and beyond that, will it actually create higher levels of credibility, which it has done? And will it drive empathy? Because at the end of the day, my job, right, is to make ideas matter. And you can't do that if people don't have a sense of belonging to you and your ideas because you're not like them. But in this case, you are. That's a really, really interesting slant and take and and, and a very, very good commentary of this uh, this whole thing around vulnerability because uh, I've, I've been suggesting that, you know, the key to true professionalism uh, is vulnerability. However, you need to, you need to, absolutely right. You need to make sure that there's a level of credibility there first in order to make that vulnerability uh, or that, or the exposing of said vulnerability all the more credible. Uh, and all, all the more, because I think that what people are doing and are guilty of uh, when it comes to trying to create influence uh, for themselves and their personal brands and what have you. They're trying to play the violin first uh, mm. and they're trying to play the sympathy card first and look, poor me, poor me, poor me. Oh, and by the way, I'm dead successful now. But I think everybody would get hung up on that poor me bit uh, a little bit too much. And if it gets, and one thing that I've found whenever I've talked about uh, any particular challenging situation, like the start of COVID and, and all the stuff that went on uh, with my family around that time, what I found was that it had, and I didn't do this on purpose. It was sort of by accident. I'd sort of talked about some real key things that needed to, that needed to be talked about within a, within working, and it was within property management teams you know, within the real estate space. But then I dropped why and how, or where I discovered that lesson from, and it instantly created a much greater level of impact because of the fact that I made the lesson and the education and the knowledge a lot more relevant to the professional before I then connected it to the personal. And I didn't do it on purpose, but now that you've highlighted that from an influential point of view, it makes absolute sense to make sure that you have earned the right to open up your vulnerabilities to a degree. Otherwise, all you're yeah. doing is playing the world's smallest violin. Uh, and, and I think the, the immediate analogy that came into my head as you were talking there was that a lot of people are using vulnerability as the main as the main part of a dish when it really should just be the flavor on top of the steak, uh, where the steak is the professionalism and the flavor on top is what adds to the personality of that steak and actually creates a memorable experience for whoever's consuming. Is that about right? Yes, I really uh, love the way you phrase that. And the one thing that I love about that is, uh, this is something that I share with my clients, is you should explore, not exploit weaknesses, right? So some people exploit weakness rather than explore it. Uh, one is a, a positive uh, posture of how you look at weakness, exploring it. How can this be of service to others? The other one is exploit, which is, you know, intrinsically a negative, um, and it's a usage, uh, using people, right, to make them feel like they should listen to you, right? You are owed their attention. It's not the case at all. You do not have a mortgage on suffering. None of us do, right? So we need to explore, not exploit weakness. And something that we should all do, you know, in, in real estate or in creative industry or finance or education or whatever it is, and I work across a lot of different 
industries, one of the things I say is if you're going to lead truly and deeply and really thoroughly build uh, connections and belong with people, you have to be remarkable, but also relatable. So those are the two R's, right? So when you're remarkable, that means you're, you're credible, you're an authority, you're a trusted, you're the go-to person, you've built that brand, but you're relatable. And so you can deploy these two ideas either simultaneously together if you're very considered and you've got a strategy for it, or sometimes you may have to just put one before the other mm. because you can't just drop everything and then just spend weeks and months writing a strategy on things, right? So go with what the low-hanging fruits are first and also what is strategically going to be more efficient. So you need to be remarkable and relatable. So that's the, if you really wanted to boil it down, those are the two things that people will need to see and experience from you to really have a sense of attachment and bond with you. And it's really simple when you put it in those two terms. Now, Nathan, what I what I'm unpacking from that is is if we're to become influential people, those two those two R's, remarkable and relatable, need to be done um, in the right order, in in but and in sync at the same time. What else do you feel from a personal brand point of view? What else do you feel are the ingredients when it comes to making? personal brands more successful you you've sort of alluded to a couple of those different bits but if we were to really put a boil it if we were to really boil it down and put it into the nuts and bolts of what what it takes or, or why personal brands are successful what do you think they are so i guess to preface this this next discussion it's really important to know the difference between branding and marketing so branding is a who we are item and marketing is a what we do item, all right? So for those of us on this call, some of us sometimes uh, can just blur those lines and not kind of be clear on what uh, it is that we're doing. Are we doing a branding thing or are we doing a marketing thing? So I guess, Andy, uh, you have business brands which are bigger then you have personal brands. And personal brands, you'll find that people joining us on this episode fall into one of two categories for personal brands. Either A, they are like their own person and their own business. So they're like a solo printer or a, you know self-employed and so forth, right? A speaker, coach, author, leader, uh, consultant. Then you have uh, part two. So people in this second care are people who are leaders in someone else's company, in someone else's organization, but they themselves have kind of built their own brand, but they don't necessarily own the company in which they operate. So I think when it comes to personal branding, a lot of us already know all the really classic things like, do you have a logo, the, the colors or fonts or photography, clothing, all of those things, which are visual identity. But I would say that it starts even more psychologically closer to home. And it's three things. People who build personal brands understand people, pain, and the promise. So they understand who it is that they impact or who it is that they serve and who it is that looks to them. So if you want to become a go-to person, whether you are a solopreneur or you are someone in another person's organization, to develop that real sense of authority as a go-to, you need to understand who your people are. If you uh, chase all the rabbits, you catch none, right? So that's a really simple thing. So the second thing is the pain. As someone who builds brands, you have to talk about people's problems. 
Now we can do this ethically by making sure wherever you talk about pain, you talk about hope, right? I always uh, say no to projects and clients if they talk about problems without solutions or pain without hope. I think it's ethically wrong. The world doesn't need it. Uh, they need people with more moral leadership than that and more creativity than that, right? So pain, actually understand what it is that people want to solve. Because you can only do that once you know who it is that you're dealing with. And then the third thing is the promise. What is it that you as a personal brand can actually deliver on that'll help them plug that hole, that'll help them solve that problem? So those are the kind of the three elements. And there's plenty of other storytelling uh, formats, which I go into in some of my other content, which I guess gives you a really you know, more uh, thorough look at the frameworks to deliver this rather simple headline view of it. But if you're going to be a personal brand who lives and breathes and embodies uh, what you say is your ideas, then it usually does come down to the three things, which is like people, who is that pain? You know, what is it they're feeling? And then the promise, how can you help them transform as a person? Who do you see as a high performance human in your eyes, whether it's, you know, in your personal life or out there in the world, like who do you identify as high performance humans? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different people who I think are so marvelous in different ways. Obviously, one of the biggest high-performance brands on earth is Brendan Bouchard. I think he's an absolute legend. And so he is on one end of the scale. I think he's just sensational. And then you've got other people who are perhaps lesser known. So there's people who are my friend's grandmas, who I think are insanely high-performance people, mm. right? Because we have a certain kind of set of metrics to measure measure what success look like, right? So, you know, as, as you might be aware, my brother has a real estate company and uh, also my sister is a pediatric ICU nurse and, and then I'm a, a, a creative industry guy, right? So three very different people, three insanely different people. How do you measure success? What, do, what are the metrics that you use to go, is that person successful compared to this one? So for me... I had to really wrap around, uh, get my head around, what am I using to measure success for myself? Mm. So when I started my business 20 years ago, I actually decided that money was not my uh, success measurement and numbers or vanity metrics, as we call it these days, were not my measures for success, but deep impact was and influence. So influence is wide, impact is deep. That's what I craved. And I saw that in some of the grandmas at church. I saw the way people from four-year-olds to 45-year-olds dropped everything to listen when these people spoke. And I thought, wow, these people not only have influence wide with all different people, with all different walks of life, but really impact, really deep, deep, lasting impact. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. And that's what I want to be as an almost 40-year-old. I want to be that now. Uh, but obviously, that, that it takes time, as you know. So to me, some of those high-performance guys, Brendan Bouchard, but also some of my friends' grandmas. So it really does come down to the metrics that you use and only choose a few to measure success for yourself. I absolutely love that, the fact that you are in, in the same breath. Uh, you have perfectly highlighted how uh, a high-performance human can, be, can come in all sorts of different shapes, sizes, ages, whatever the case may be. And, and and I think one thing that I'm discovering along this series is that 
with those four elements uh, that I believe account to uh, becoming a high performance human being, success, influence, connection, and happiness, I feel that throughout this series, uh, everybody that's come on so far has really sort of gravitated towards one or the other, depending on what their motivations are, right? They all acknowledge that all four mean something. Uh, but for you, the influence side of things is what really resonates with you. And I love, I really love the fact that identifying in some of your friends' grandmas at church, that you, to, in your mind, they are the epitome of high performance because of the level of authority that they have in terms of when they talk, people listen. And, and, and it doesn't matter who it is that's listening, they all listen. And when you think about it in those terms, Jeepers, there'll be presidents in the, around the world that would love to have that level of influence, right? They would love to be Absolutely. Uh, that have that level of performance in what they do, because that's ultimately what politicians are. They, that's what they're there for is to create a level of influence that makes decisions. Right. And, and they could do a lot worse than sitting in church and having to listen to some of these grandmas up in, uh, up in Dubai. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's pretty phenomenal right. when you think about it. And I think um, you really also need to take whatever those uh, thoughts are that your own metrics for success. And then the next part, I guess, is scale them up, right? So for me, those conversations, when I looked at those grandmas and see them as high performance humans, I'm like, okay, how can I do that? But at scale, you know, that's, that's the piece for me that I guess that I just had the next size of shoes to fill. It's like, how do I do that? But on scale. Yeah. So you kind of need to go back and uh, re-examine that. So like my sister, she literally saves lives multiple times a day. Uh, my brother helps people find properties at really pivotal points in their lives. And for me, my metric is I help uh, help people get their ideas to the people who need it most because people change the world, but it starts with an idea, right? But I've got clients and who are mentors of mine who are like crazy rich. I mean, one guy leaned over to me in a meeting and just said, I'm ultra rich. People need to get over it. <laughs> and, so like, and, and I think that's really funny and awesome. But it also, I realize like intrinsically money is not what motivates me. So extrinsic motivation is different as you would appreciate from intrinsic mm -hmm. uh, motivation. And so early on, I learned that, you know, money necessarily doesn't wake me up in the morning, um, but it's definitely part of what motivates me. Right. Because we'll have to, you know, obviously, feel our need right and that needs resources to do that and and look you you need to scale you know in order to scale inevitably there's going to need to be some financial uh some financial injection of some description and it's interesting we talk about money just briefly i i've been having my own what's the word my own debate in my own head around the the importance of money and my own perception of money because until recently I, like you, uh, was very much of the thought process of I'm not motivated by money and I'm still not motivated by money. However, I think the mistake that some people can make with regards to that is they almost classify it as a materialistic almost demonic sort of thing that, you know, how dare, how, you know, what, why money should never mo be the motivation. It should always be the cause. And, and it all sounds a little bit biblical, uh, to be honest at times when what I, and I was part of that, 
But I think one thing that I'm glad you mentioned towards the end there, and one thing that I'm very much becoming uh, way more aware of is that if we want to be influential, then, you know, at some stage or another, we're going to need to have a level of financial success in order to scale that influence. Because one thing that money does do, it makes good people better and bad people worse. And if you were, if you're a good person that has a strong idea that can change the world and create benefit to people at scale, then at some stage or another, you're going to have to become friendly with money in order to make that happen to the extent that your idea warrants, because there are so many ideas, and I'm sure you will have come across loads of them uh, over your journey uh, with what you do, Nathan, that you would have come across so many ideas that would have been game changers, world changers, real rock the boat stuff, but end up becoming limited because of a lack of success from a PL point of view. Now, I don't want you to disclose any ideas, but have you got any examples where you've seen an idea or you've heard an idea and you've thought, you know what, this is this is just eyes wide open. This is just an absolute Monty. But then it ends up going nowhere purely based on the fact that people try and beat the drum a little bit too hard and and, and get a little bit and don't get as as practical as what they perhaps need to be yeah i think um timing and uh, obviously getting the injection of capital are two things that sometimes pass each other as ships in the night in australia uh, we have an incredible brain trust both historically and currently so the fridge for example as as far as i know correct me if i'm wrong was actually largely a Australian invention, but then it got developed in America because we didn't have the funds and the resources to actually actualize it. So we've got a history in Australia of actually being people who can get incredibly inventive ideas up, but we haven't always been able to fund it and then make it a reality. And technology, some of the biggest companies on the market at the moment, uh, including, say, Canva and other different ones, are actually Aussie ideas, right? And then when they go to Silicon Valley, uh, then that's when they really get really uh, huge momentum, get legs, and then just absolutely fly. So we've seen that time and time again. But what does that mean for us, right? So people who are either working in real estate or working in other different fields and they're building a brand of their own, uh, I guess what I would encourage people to do is to look at when you spend money, uh, where are you going to get a better, um, I guess, unreasonable impact for your dollar? So I know that there's been uh, instances where my clients have been a bit uh, kind of scarcity mindset uh, driven around an idea, which I thought was an absolute banger. I thought that was uh, an absolute uh, no-brainer. And I went to their board meetings. I talked to the CEO saying, you need to fund this more heavily. But they just didn't do it because they. the main reason, Andy, they weren't aligned with the vision and the mission of the company. Mm. Like, how simple? So when, when I showed them, hey, let's remember that in your mission and vision, the values of the company, your the, the item that I'm encouraging you to fund is actually in sync with the chart of your company. Why would you not do something which is absolutely on mission? Mm. So when, when you go back to that document, which is the master document for everything that you do, it becomes that true north and it should affect all your decision-making downstream. So in this case, they missed a massive opportunity because they just didn't think of it, uh, didn't, didn't, sorry, they didn't look at the opportunity through the lens of that document of their vision, mission, and values. And they were being a little bit too short-sighted in thinking about the data, yeah. the transactional side of the business and whatnot, as opposed to the grand vision, right? 
Yeah, exactly. And their argument was, you know, a house divided falls. And I'm like, cool, I understand that too many segments of revenue can get confusing and uh, be a drain on staff resources, et cetera. But I'm also thinking, hey, let's bring out the lens a bit, look at the five-year view of things. Would it not be more strategic to, to cop a hit today, feel present pain for future potential? So eventually, you know, they discussed it, didn't move forward. But, you know, that's uh, that's the case with life, right? Uh, history is always a, uh, the, the harshest judge. Absolutely. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Rita, Real Estate Training Australia. Shane and the team genuinely care for the success of all of their students, not only providing them with the qualifications to enter the industry, but the skills in order to thrive. With 24-hour online support, access to one-on-one training sessions, lifetime access to industry mentors and support, as well as free job-ready training programs for anybody that gets their qualifications through their portal. They're a tremendous outfit and they want to make sure that everybody that comes into the industry stays in the industry. For more information, make sure you head to their website, www.reta.edu.au. Now, there'll be people that'll be listening to this podcast, right? That will be, they will think that they have an idea that they they feel, they they to the core feel that it's it could be something huge or they have a concept or I'm not talking about it, but like they have a theory or they have a, a way of being that they personally feel could change the world, right? And for many of those people that are in that position or for those of you that are listening to this podcast that are in this position where it could be a scarcity mindset, not only from a financial point of view, but from a confidence sort of balls to the wall sort of point of view as well, right? Where a lot of the time these people hold their ideas in through fear of things like judgment and whatnot. In your opinion, and and obviously from your side of things, you you will have gone through these barriers yourself, I'm sure. How much when it comes to becoming a person of influence, of genuine influence, how how much or how do you explain to these people that have got these ideas that, that, are, that are just too shy, for want of a better word, from expressing them out to the world? How do you suggest to them that they overcome these ideas or what do you genuinely feel are the things that are holding them back or what's creating this fear? You know what? The biggest, and usually for me, it's uh, time and time again, the biggest number one thing is a self of unworthiness, a sense of unworthiness. So I've done plenty of Zooms, which are little private meetings between myself and uh, speakers and coaches and authors, people doing amazing things, people who have done, you know, TED Talks with millions upon millions of views. And they lean into the camera and say, you know what? I'm going to get caught one day I'm, and people are going to find out that I'm just like them, you know, like, oh, I don't deserve to be here or I don't feel I have the expertise to be able to talk. And I'm like, you've literally got multiple PhDs. You've just won all these massive awards. There's 3 million views on your TED talk and you're telling me you're not worthy. <laughs> so there's this part that uh, I've seen time and time again where internally we say, am I worthy of this? So my answer to you, everyone listening here is yes, you are worthy. One thing I talk about is you were born to brand your ideas. So that means that 
if you were to kind of think about that statement, you were born to brand your ideas. That means there's a purpose to what you're doing and that what you feel you are called to do is absolutely right. And then you have the ability to brand it. You have an ability to know how to put the idea out there in a way that is easily understood. But you can't do that unless you feel, part one, that you are worthy to do that. So I think that's been a massive potential crusher. I've seen people uh, who haven't dealt with this sense of worthiness end up falling later down in the track in their career when, I mean, we've all seen great leaders fall from great heights, right? And there's this insecurity that doesn't go away unless we deal with it. Mm. So one thing that I do for myself, because um, I wouldn't be truthful if I said that I didn't also experience the same thing, I don't ever uh, deal with, you know, the imposter syndrome or worthiness as an eradication approach. Never. I just tell it rather than you sitting in the driver's seat, you're still in the car, but you're in the back seat this time. You're on the journey with me. I'm going to befriend you, but you're in the backseat. You're not driving us anywhere. You're not giving me directions. I acknowledge your presence. I'll work with you, but you're not in the driver's seat. So that's been something that requires a mental shift, doing some hard work. Maybe for some of us that might require some professional grade conversations with psychologists or even friends and family, but it's really making that shift on your relationship with worthiness. To me, that's the ultimate power is starting there. And then the second thing that I see is the massive brand crusher, potential crusher, money and earning crusher is decision-making. Mm. So people don't know how to make decisions. So either they think that people have to make decisions instantly to be seen as strong and confident and as a worthy leader, or they don't have any kind of mechanisms to make decisions. So that's the second thing. So worthiness, decision-making. So for me, I find that some of the greatest leaders I've ever worked with were people who didn't feel compelled to make decisions in front of people instantly. They said, I'll take the question on notice like politicians do, and I've worked with plenty of them. They do the thinking time and then they come back and say, here's the, here's the decision, but they're secure enough not to have to do it in the there and then because they're more considered and they're secure and they can take their time with it. But they also have a framework to help guide those decisions. And so for me, uh, the biggest three things for me is need, opportunity, and value. How do those three criteria come together to help me make that decision? So that really does uh, help myself and clients make a decision on something like, is it before funding a massive project or accepting a speaking engagement or developing a new product? How does it reach, uh, how does it meet rather need, opportunity, and value as a criteria. So those, those are two big things, worthiness, decision-making. With your making ideas matter, what was, what was the major sticking point for you when you decided to embark on this trip? When we're talking about the worthiness and decision-making side of things, for you personally, because the way I see you traveling and I I personally see you as a as a high performing human. That's the that's very much the vibe that I get from you, Nathan. But as you mentioned there, you've had your own struggles with worthiness and whatnot, and you put it in the back seat and what have you. At what point was it? When you first started, was it before you started? Was it when you got part way through and you thought, "Oh shit, this isn't quite taking. This isn't quite sticking the way I was hoping it would stick." Like when, when was the, the major point for you? And then 
roughly speaking, how regularly do you do you feel it comes back to try and get you? Yeah, I think this is a very real question and something that all of us on this episode can relate to in some form. Uh, so for me, the make ideas matter message, like the framework and the message. I really uh, took my time. It was a slow creep to come up with this framework, but it was born out of a problem. And that was, I was getting really tired and annoyed and almost angered by seeing great ideas fail Mm. and by seeing great people be unnoticed and overlooked. So I thought, you know what, what the world needs right now is uh, some leadership from people who are people who carry amazing ideas, but they need help, right? So we're in an attention economy. So what can I do to be part of that? So this is when the the pain of staying the same is outstripped by, uh, sorry, the pain of change rather is outstripped by the power of uh, the pain of staying the same. So for me, I'm like, you know what? I also am am feeling uh, that this is happening to me. I feel like I am being overlooked for things that I'm very qualified to share and speak on. Mm. So maybe I need to refine the way I communicate my ideas because if I want to take my brand to the next level, that is not delivering creative services, but delivering uh, consulting services that is scalable, helping people to understand how they share their ideas and spark change, I need to myself look at what problems am I creating for myself by not, cha- not by not changing? So, and that was committing to ideas, really just buckling down and committing to less but better ideas. Mm. And ironically, that's what I've uh, kind of been uh, accused of being a genius of, and that is to helping people find their genius ideas and help weaponize it to change lives. So then the second part of your question is how often does that worthiness creep back in and also that also has been relevant to me too, that decision-making kind of uh, insecurities as well. So I need to always make sure that my decisions are compatible with my future. Mm. So that means being very practical, thinking about my health, thinking about family and my friends, but also what will I be grateful for in 20 years in terms of decisions that I made today? And then what chances do I wish uh, that I took that I didn't take? So for decisions like recently, uh, well, not recently, three or four years ago, I was in Japan with friends holidaying and I saw this little man in in a little window in a seafood uh, market selling whiskey barrel-aged coffee, right? And when I tasted it with my mate, I'm like, this is a game changer. This is so incredibly delicious. Australia Mm. needs this, right? So I kind of thought nothing of it lost a lot of money during COVID, then I started to think about, you know, maybe I just want to take a risk on something. So then all my decision uh, insecurity started to come back. But when I look at, should I start a coffee brand, right? And the answer is ultimately yes, as you know, I've done. But those little decision-making little devils on the shoulder came back that I'm like, okay, well, let's look at it through the lens of opportunity. So need, opportunity and value, right? And then I felt really at peace with my decision to actually turn this from being a hobby into a proper business with its own legs. And sales have been amazing. People love it. In fact, more than I thought they would love it. So Wiscano Coffee, Whiskey Barrel Edge Coffee, has grown to something that I didn't expect that it would be. But that's because I was secure in my decision-making, at least that I feel. And uh, it's really taken me to delicious places I wouldn't have expected, met amazing people and having more fun. 
How much? I love that, by the way. Uh, how much? How much of that thought process, mind process, heart process has been influenced by your own personal experiences? Because you alluded to uh, earlier on in this conversation some serious health challenges eleven years ago or so. One thing that I find fascinating and frustrating in the same in the same instance is the fact that for a lot of us to realize things like that that really shift the course of our lives we almost need to experience it's almost it's almost like it's a a human indictment that we have to pay the penance with some ridiculous trauma in order to really open our eyes to to game-changing thought processes processes like this how much is your life experience, and and if you if you don't mind, just just briefly go into those 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 challenges that you faced eleven years ago or so. How much of that shifted your mindset, and 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 or did you feel that you always had that mindset the whole time, and those and those experiences led for you to become a lot more forthright in those in those thoughts and, and feelings? Yeah, I think uh, this is key. I I really uh, I guess I would have a alternate view on creating a uh, meaning from suffering, right? So I don't think that it's necessarily uh, a criteria to create meaning. We shouldn't have to have suffering, but alas, we find ourselves in a world with suffering and life is not perfect. And we have this beautiful plan for our lives and then we wake up, right? <laughs> so um, I think there's a kind of, I guess, two ways uh, that we can learn. Uh, and that is either seeing someone else go through something or we going it through going through that thing ourselves right so you can actually still learn and do incredibly powerful things in the world without going through your own trauma mm. so trauma really is the accelerated learning that's how i see it so as as a as a kid you know our our family grew up in a household where our parents were senior pastors of a church so we saw incredible things uh, both beautiful and devastating about the human condition since we were really young, right? So we understood from very early days how complex and how difficult and how amazing it is to be human. So there were no illusions about about what life uh, could be or, you know, could not be or w- what we could wish it could be. So for me, I was always a watch and learn type guy rather than having to be thrown up against a wall to learn. So I always just took note of what makes people great or Hey, this person got in trouble for doing that. I won't do it. Super mm. simple. I'm a watch and learn guy. Others are, they need to be slammed against the wall kind of guys to learn. I've got friends like that. Um, people who are maybe just more kinesthetic in their learning. So they just have to go through it up against the wall, go through this thing to learn. So for me, it ended up happening with both, right? So when I was lying in that hospital after the, the I had a reconstructive surgery, uh, and it didn't go well. And I basically came out of the surgery and I just wanted to die. I was just in this catastrophic, uh, distressing amount of pain in, in the ICU recovery. I'm like, I just actually want to die. Just, just please let me, let me die. Right. That's where I was at. Uh, then a piece of steel in my chest slipped, pushed on a lung for six months, couldn't get help. So it was basically suicidal pain for a crazy amount of time before a surgeon helped and actually identify the issue, opened the the chest with surgery again to remove the metal. I'm like, maybe I can live. Maybe I can actually do this. 
Mm. So what I decided in, in that bed was that, okay, so the packaging of my life is about to change. I can either get on board or I can whinge about it. Mm. So I, but what I did is I gave myself permission to whinge for a while. So I'm like, all right, I'm not superhuman. I'm going to give myself a period of mourning to be able to mourn the life that I physically envisage for myself. So that meant, uh, you know, doing a lot of deep work, multidisciplinary uh, pain management, which involves, you know, psychology and all that kind of stuff. So I actually mourned the life physically that I thought I was going to have and then kind of then go, all right, that's the line in the sand. Now, how does the packaging now look? How can I change uh, that hope that I had the plan and the goals for my life because I'm very big on goals? How can I just change the packaging? So that is where now I put this big emphasis on uh, the making ideas matter part of business and marketing and branding is that really it starts with ideas and desires. So for that, physically, I can do that, right? I can go and speak at conferences around the world. I can do online courses, all those kinds of things. I really wanted to do a lot more physical things. So I still do a bit of film work now and then. But if you're going to be pragmatic about it, I'm just not compatible to, to do that. Whereas this new packaging, I definitely am. Final question, and it's, it's born from, from learning a little bit about your life uh, just in that last one. You mentioned that you were brought up uh, in the church environment with pastors and with, with your parents and pastors and, and whatnot. You talk about helping people to make their ideas matter and then and and then it really does tie in beautifully with the way that you articulate your own ideas and knowledge and awareness and whatnot how much and it and i know i already know the answer i'm sort of teeing you up for an obvious answer here but how much of an influence was having parents that that you know that preached and and really helped people to see the light from a faith point of view. Um, and this isn't a religious question, by the way, gang. This is more so how uh, people that are in those positions within religion can create influence by the way in which they articulate their message. When you were listening and, and hearing and, and seeing your folks deliver those messages in the way that they did, how much of an influence was that on the the way that you directed your life moving forward because my for my personal point I know that when I went and watched my uh, my mum go and do public speaking on behalf of the police force when she was in the police and I was dragged along to these things that that bored the shit out of me but the way in which that she, the way in which she articulated a lot of the stuff that she was talking about it really sort of subconsciously made me go oh that's that's pretty cool that she's got that sort of sway. And, and she used to do it in different ways for different people as well, right? And I used to, I'd be able to identify when she was talking to a group of teenagers about drugs versus a group of benefactors about the benefits of supporting hearing dogs for the deaf, for example, right? Uh, how much of an impact did that have on you? And how early on did you feel that, ooh, this, this is something that could be for me, not from a religious point of view, but just from that influence point of view? Yeah, I think uh, for any of us who want to magnify our impact or increase income or really broaden our reach, uh, I would encourage you to follow two kinds of people. That would be preachers and comedians, right? These <laughs> two people, uh, they are the absolute masters of 
communicating complex ideas in a very simple way in which we can relate, right? So, okay, let's unpack that. So the first one is preachers, right? Uh, yeah, so I, I grew up in, in the in the church and I absolutely loved it. And so what I really found interesting and very cool about preachers is their ability to be able to distill the divine into something very day-to-day. Mm. And that's a, that's a lot of work. You think about it, right? So you're talking about a lot of theological content. How do you deliver that in a very day-to-day way within a 30-minute sermon, right? Like that's a big ask. Mm. So then you've got, um, uh, I guess, added on to that, you've got comedians, right? Very, very sophisticated observational commentary on what's happening in the world. How do you distill that in a very uh, simple day-to-day manner while still triggering the understanding of that more complex idea, right? We all know what a comedian is referring to when they give you like a little, you know, pop culture reference, right? So they give you something simple to trigger something significant. Mm. So I thought comedians and preachers, they do that brilliantly. But one of the things that I guess that influenced me with uh, my, my parents is they took us uh, into the world and helped us to see the big picture. So they took us to conferences. So we heard from uh, leaders, not just preachers, like leaders from different companies and different organizations from all around the world, from all sorts of industries and, and size communities doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things, right? And that can't help but change your worldview, right? It changes the way you see what you do in the world and your role in it. So for me, that was amazing. We went, you know, through uh, some of the poorest places in in Malaysia back in the eighties on on overnight trains and saw, you know, village life and all that kind of stuff, right? And that helps you understand uh, how your ideas matter to others. So the other thing it really did for me is it showed me how results work. Mm-hmm. So I saw very clearly in this case, the framework happened to be a faith-based framework in my life. Now it's marketing framework. How are my ideas actually transmuting into results? Are people seeing me on stage, hearing my methodology and then doing something with it? Mm-hmm. Is it a significant and sophisticated thing that I'm making simple so they can actually implement it? Mm-hmm. The comedians and uh, preachers are brilliant at that. And if you want to look at the church context, look at how people run their lives based on what they've learned on a Sunday, right? Or during the week in whatever programs. The significant ideas made simple, implemented into doing the doing, right? Results. So yeah, that really did influence uh, the way I do life, but not the only thing, right? There's been many, many other things, but my parents obviously were a huge, huge, massive, positive uh, influence in how I do life now. And I think that's reflected in all three of you, right? Because your brother, your brother is is a is a wonderful individual from uh, from what I see, and 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 your sister working at ICU now. It's clear that they they must have done something right. Uh, they must have done plenty right. Um, Nathan, look, thank you so much for your time today. This conversation has gone in all sorts of wonderful directions, and. The quality of this conversation is reflected in the volume of notes that I've been taking, and and I'm sure there'll be a lot of people taking notes from this episode as well. And if and you really, really should, team, uh, we will make sure that you can find Nathan as easily as possible because I'm sure you will want to. Um, and and Nathan, you mentioned coffee. Uh, we in Australia are a nation of coffee drinkers. And uh, yeah. what's the brand name, please? So that is Wiscano Coffee. That's uh, W H I S K 
A-N-O-Coffee.com. And it's uh, literally the, some of the world's finest whiskey barrels. We put the green beans in there and then we let them age, roast them to perfection so you get to enjoy it. Oh, listen to him. Wow, <laughs> so it's just a bit of fun. So that's available in Australia Happy. only at the moment. Um, <laughs> I love it. Hey, Nathan, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate all of the wisdom, knowledge, awareness that you're bringing to our listeners and beyond. Please keep doing what you're doing because it's absolutely wonderful in the way that you are doing it as well. Team, uh, I hope you got as much value out of this one as I did. Until next time, please stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy. And we'll see you next time on the High Performance Human Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The High Performance Human. Hopefully, we've given you enough value to justify the time that you've given us. And we've got you that much closer to becoming your version of a high performance human. If you want to have any questions answered, then please feel free to shoot me a DM on Instagram at Andy Reed Coaching, or alternatively, shoot me an email, andy at andyreed.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel. Thank you so much for joining us once again. And I really can't wait to hopefully bring you some more value in the next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy. Most importantly, stay happy.